several times throughout the New Testament, Scripture speaks of Jesus as being the only begotten. So what does only begotten mean, and why is it important to us today? Well, stay with us to hear the answer to these questions and many more. Welcome to this edition of the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, whose years of answering the questions of his many listeners have been preserved for the education and pleasure of generations to come. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Our first question comes from a listener in Gladstone, Oregon, who writes, While my husband was in the hospital, I kept praying for his healing and ended my prayer, if it be thy will. However, I had listened to another radio minister who quotes verses which he says mean we needn't pray that way. He says it's God's will for all to be healed. It seems to me he's taking verses out of context. What's your opinion? First of all, let me say that there are no verses that teach that. He's not only taken verses out of context, but he's misquoted verses. Unfortunately, today... A great many people need magic to strengthen their faith. And we have many miraculous things that are recorded. Some of them, of course, never happen. And I personally believe that we should pray for the sick. I'm of the opinion that we do not pray enough for our sick. That when I say our sick, when it's in our families. This is a matter I think we should lay before God. I think that's what James meant when he speaked about anointing with oil. He really means call the doctor because the word anointing there has to do with healing. It's medicinal. And then he says prayer, call the elders to pray. And that's listed first. Prayer comes first. So we should pray for the sick. And I believe that God does hear and answer prayer relative to the sick. I feel like I'm an example of it. I was given three months to live with cancer, and I rejoice in the fact that God at that time heard and answered prayer. He may not the next time, but he did then. And I think that you are entirely accurate in saying, if it be thy will, and to say that you know God's will is almost putting yourself in the place of God. You do not know what God's will is respect to any person who's sick. It ought to cause us to be drawn to God and to pray. I am of the opinion that we are having today an overdose of not only emotion, but of old so-called five-point Calvinism, and it's rather hard, and it's almost the opposite from this emotional view, but they all seem to agree on one thing, that they know exactly what God's going to do under certain circumstance. I'm sure that we're in a dangerous position to try to take the place of God or try to dictate to him or attempt to in any way say that God has to do a certain thing under certain circumstances. Somehow or another, that's not the position that God finds himself in today. 
Our next question is from a listener in Kansas City, Missouri, who asks, Who is Lucifer? My pastor says he is king of Babylon. I say he is Satan who fell from heaven. That is the way I read Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. What do you think? Well, may I say to you that I wish you wouldn't ask me questions and put me over against the pastor. Just write me a question and say, do you think Lucifer is the king of Babylon? And then that would get me off the hook and keep me from getting in the ugly position of opposing pastors, which I really don't like to do at all. Let me say that the king of Babylon is mentioned in the 14th chapter of Isaiah, but what is said concerning him could not apply to any king of Babylon at all. For instance, it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, making himself God. And the thought is that though the king of Babylon attempted to exalt himself, He was merely revealing the characteristic that the one that was his father, the devil, the Lord Jesus, you know, said to religious rulers, the works of your father you will do, and that's the devil. And so here, the king of Babylon exalts himself, but the one who really did the exalting was Satan at the beginning, and it takes you back to the time when he was Lucifer's son of the morning and how he was brought down. And at the time that this was written, the king of Babylon was not brought down at all. In fact, he was on the way up, not on the way down. So the application is to Satan. And though the king of Babylon here does manifest this excessive pride, which brought Satan down. And it's the same one that Jesus is talking about in Luke ten eighteen, And maybe we should go over to Luke ten eighteen and see just what that has to say and see if we agree with you on that. So far, we're on your side. Ten eighteen reveals, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And I thoroughly agree with you that that is referring back to the time that Satan fell out of heaven. We're not told too much about that in the Word of God, but it's there. It's quite obvious that is there. But apparently the Lord did not want to tell us too much about what the situation was in this universe before man was put here. The Bible takes up really the history of man on this earth, and it begins with his creation, and it ends, of course, with eternity, so that we have man's story here. And actually, to bring in Satan is just to bring him in as it relates to man's history. Now, here's a question from right here in Pasadena, California. The listener says, I recently received literature which advocates the use of liturgical dancing in church services as an aid to worship. What do you think? There are certain scriptures that are cited here. 
actually all are Old Testament scriptures with the exception of one. And of course, it has no reference at all to the order of any church service down here. It is Matthew eleven seventeen. We probably ought to turn back and read that, and I shall. And saying, we have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. That's a parable that the Lord Jesus gave, and it has nothing in the world to do with worship at all. It is a parable about spoiled children. One time we were very joyful. We laughed with you, and you didn't want to play, and then we cried with you, and you didn't want to cry. And so we just didn't know what you wanted to do. Spoil brats, if you please. has nothing to do with worship at all. Though it might be in the liturgy of the Old Testament, however, it's only used at certain times. The time that, for instance, that David brought the ark up to Jerusalem, he danced before it. And Christianity is not a liturgical worship at all. And you can't call anything evangelical that has all this liturgy in it, regardless of what it is. It's just marching up and down the aisle. And in a liturgy, there's really very little that you can do. You can march up and down the aisle or dance up and down the aisle or walk on your hands up and down the aisle. But that's about all you can do. That woman at the well raised the question, do you worship God in this mountain or yet in Jerusalem? And the Lord Jesus said the true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And it hasn't anything in the world to do with a liturgy at all. Now, if you are going to have a liturgy, it should be reverent. Many churches have a very reverent ritual. I have respect for certain churches that use ritual, actually, in their way to glorify God. I don't think it's essential at all. But I suppose all of us have a certain ritual. I don't care how informal those of us that belong to independent Bible churches. We open by singing the doxology, and we close with the benediction, and that's a ritual of a sort. So a ritual is something that hasn't anything really to do with your worship of God today at all. And I'm afraid that Protestantism is going that direction. And I think that this thing of dancing, and it's been introduced before, actually it hasn't worked very well. It doesn't minister to reverence at all. It just doesn't do that. I think, frankly, it's rather irreverent, and I don't feel that it could contribute to worship in any way whatsoever. In fact, the dance belongs to the world rather than to the church. We come now to a question from El Paso, Texas. The listener writes, What does Scripture mean when it states that man was created in the image of God? Does it mean that God has a body? Man is not created in the image of God in the sense that he has a body. Frankly, God does not have a body. We're told that. The Lord Jesus said God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, God is a spirit. Now, how is 
God and man alike in many ways. First of all, God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Man is a trinity, and we dealt with that the other day in a question that had a little different connotation, but it had to do with the fact that man was a trinity. And so I think maybe I better turn back to that again. It's First Thessalonians 5.23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible does make a distinction, you see, between spirit and soul there. And soul, apparently the psychological part of man, and you have then man is a trinity. God is a trinity. They would be like in that. They would be like in this. God and man at the beginning had fellowship together. Obviously, man was created for that purpose, and that's the reason God created him in his image. He had to be in the image of God in the sense that he had to be able to understand, he had to be able to communicate, he had to be able to respond, and Adam was able to do that. Now, Adam fell and no longer wanted that fellowship with God. And in fact, he, I think, was totally incapable of it after the fall. And that's the reason regeneration is necessary for any of us, because we are born with a nature that actually is in rebellion against God. That's the picture of man today. And he's got a nature that is at war with God. We're told, and I'm reading now Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so that man today is dead in trespasses and sins. And God told Adam, in the day you eat, you'll die. He died that day spiritually, not physically at all, so that man has that capacity for God. And when he's regenerated today, when man reaches up, and accepts Christ as his Savior, acknowledges he's a sinner, and now is brought back into a relationship with God where he can have fellowship with him, where he can read his word and be blessed by it, where he can pray to God. All of these things are made possible because man's in the image of God. And then I think there is a third one there that is, I suppose you would call it psychological, man is self-conscious. Now, as far as we know, the animal world that has life, and even the highest form of animal life, doesn't seem to have that self-consciousness and that God-consciousness. As far as I know, no monkey in the tree ever, you know, stop jumping from limb to limb and say, my, what in the world am I doing this for? Who am I? Where am I going? What's my future? And what about this great universe I live in? Now, as far as I know, no monkey has done that. I've watched them in the zoo, and I honestly have come to the conclusion that they don't think along that line. They seem to be more interested in getting peanuts from the 
crowd out there than there were anything else. They just didn't seem to have that capacity, that self-consciousness. And man has that, which I'm sure is really God-consciousness. But it's man that asks the question about the universe. And there were quite a few many years ago in England of the astronomers that were holding a meeting, and one man, and I think it was Sir James Jeans, that was the time that he was putting before them his theory, and it was a theory, of this expanding universe. So one of these atheistic astronomers spoke up and said, well, in the light of all of that, this vast universe, who is man after all? And Sir James Jeans answered very quickly. He says, man is the astronomer. He's the one that knows about it, you see. And he knows about it because God is the one who created it. And he's told man that. And only man has that. As far as I know, the monkeys are not studying the stars. As far as I know, there may be some of them that are studying it. I don't know. But that is the way man is created in the image of God. The same listener also has this question for Dr. McGee. What do the scriptures mean when they say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? Begotten is that he's unique in the sense that he's been begotten from the dead. Now that is actually the way that Paul used that. If you would go over to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, you would find there in that great sermon that Paul gave in Antioch of Pisidia. That was a great sermon. And there he made the statement of what only begotten meant. And here it is. I'm going to read verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, begotten him, how? Well, just like he says here, that he's fulfilled it in raising Jesus again from the dead. He is the only begotten son of God that's back from the dead. There's nobody else that's back from the dead in a glorified body as he is. Christ the firstfruits. Now afterward, those that are his at his coming, and they'll be the sons of God. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So that up to now, he's the only begotten, and he'll always be that because he's unique in his resurrection. He came back by his own power, the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Father. And I'd never get back from the dead in my own power, but he did. He is unique in that, and so that he is the only begotten in that sense. It has nothing in the world to do with a birth, as you and I think of it, because to us it has to do with a physical birth, and it has nothing to do with that at all. It's actually a title that belongs to him. He's the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. Our final question today comes to us from a listener in New York who asks, 
Is it a sin to condone a couple who are living together as man and wife in your home where you know what is going on? I think it's a sin. What do you think? They have thrown over, apparently, certainly the Ten Commandments. They've thrown over the Word of God. Word of God condemns it, I think, in no unmistakable terms. And then we find the same situation existing. And very frankly, my feeling is that if you've got a couple living in your home like that, I do not know what the circumstances are of the couple or their relationship or anything like that, but I would say on the face of it, I certainly would not condone it. I would condemn it, and I personally would not have it in my home. I'd certainly do something about it. But I do not know the circumstances at all that seals the lips of this individual. We are seeing such a breakdown in morality today and such loose, not only living, but loose thinking, and it's loose thinking that leads to the loose living. You see, as a man thinketh in his heart, that's the kind of man he really is. He's just waiting for the opportunity. And all that this has done, this breakdown of morals, it reveals that we had a lot of loose thinking that was going around, and now it's turning into action today. We are going to see, I think, a backlash of it. I think we're already beginning to see it. You know, we heard for a long time, well, it makes no difference about the private lives of the men in politics today. We have no right to interfere with their private lives or talk about their private lives. But the very interesting thing, friends, a man who is immoral and illegal in his private life will be that in his public life. In fact, of the matter is, he's a dangerous man to have in a public office, and we've discovered that over the past few months, and I'd say few years in this country, that a man that is immoral is not a man that you can trust. If he is loose in his morals, what ground do you believe he's honest? And look how the dishonesty is showing up today, so that All of this comes in one package. And if you're going to throw out the Ten Commandments, you're in a great deal of trouble because you've got yourself in trouble. I notice all these people today that are for the loose morality and you do as you please, but they don't think a fellow ought to have a gun. They're the crowd that are trying to control guns. Well, if they've got a right to live as they want to live and even drive while they're drinking, and they're murderers when they do that, of course. Why can't I take a gun and go down the street and start shooting in every direction? I mean, you're interfering with my liberty and my freedom if that's what I want to do. But I'm for controlling the fellow that is going down shooting. But I do feel like I ought to have a gun to protect myself from the man that's doing that today because of this Loose freedom, it leads to all kinds of looseness, friends. And I think it's time we begin to sort of check up, tighten up, and that we find out we do need a few disciplines. And after all, 
our forefathers, they were a bunch of blue stocking, blue nose, backwood, narrow-minded, bigoted people, but they sure didn't make a beautiful country for us to ruin, didn't they? They certainly made a glorious nation for a few today that want to go their own way and live their own life. Well, with that answer, we come to the close of our program today. Dr. McGee briefly touched on a number of issues that maybe sparked your interest for further study yourself. For instance, he discussed the nature of God and how it related to the creation of man in the image of God. Well, if you'd like to know more about the nature, character, and person of God, then you might be interested in our book, Who is God?, which tackles such questions as, How big is God? Does a God of love hate? And how can God exist in three persons? And then we also have a number of other resources by Dr. McGee that you might be interested in. So visit our online bookstore or just give us a call. Now, don't forget to join us this week on the Through the Bible radio program that can be heard on this station every Monday through Friday. If you're interested in being a serious student of the Word of God and you have a great desire to learn more about the truths that God presents to us in the Scripture, then we suggest that you contact us to be placed on our mailing list for notes and outlines. And by the way, we also have the notes available in an electronic format that you can download from our website along with a number of wonderful free e-booklets that we provide without charge to any who want to take the time to download them. So to contact our offices about any of our resources, ask to be placed on the mailing list, or just to express your interest in this ministry, give us a call at 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, or write to Questions and Answers. For those in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at ttb.org. This is Steve Schwetz for Through the Bible Radio with the prayer that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.